This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey, this is former WWE superstar and ECW original, The Blue Meanie. And Josh Chernoff. And uh, we're excited to announce that Mind of the Meanie is now powered by the MLW Radio Network. Myself and Josh Chernoff will bring you a show every week where we talk about everything from wrestling, movies, sports, and useless knowledge. But most importantly, we have a great group of neighbors there with front row material. Absolutely. Front row material. We've got Mike Freeland. We've got Mikey Whipwreck. And we have got hashtag... This is Jerry Lynn. You're welcome again for that. I love to be here with you guys. I'm glad to call you neighbor. Maybe I'll stop over for uh, some extra coffee or a cup of sugar or have a slice of dropped pie. Ditto. Please tune into Mind and the Meanie. Please keep supporting Front Row Material and we'll be a part of this great MLW radio network. Everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. Welcome to another episode of Overbooked, the extremely unauthorized story of ECW. My name is Mike Freeland. Welcome back in. For all of you who are listening to our story, we are in chapter 15, and this chapter is entitled The Split and Other Farewells. So we'll be picking up this story in September of 97. By 1997, tension already existed between Heyman and WCW executive Terry Taylor. Now, because in 96, Heyman threatened to sue Taylor, calling ECW champion the Sandman a drug addict on the WCW hotline. Now, Taylor had to issue a clarification on the subsequent report on the hotline, saying that he was only referring to the Sandman's on-air character. But Gordon did not view Terry Taylor as an enemy. By 1997, rumors were rampant about a mole that was inside the locker room and recruiting ECW stars to leave for WCW. Now, the truth is, there were either zero or maybe only one or two moles. That's depending on how you look at it. WCW sources said that Heyman and Gordon both had contacts in WCW. Although revolutionist WWE's history paints WCW as the bad guy in the ECW story. Kevin Sullivan would go on to say that every piece of defecting talent from ECW first called WCW, not the other way around. And Sullivan also let Heyman know that when an ECW talent was being signed, Taylor was Gordon's WCW contact. Sullivan said that the same process occurred every time that he was involved. In a quote, I was on the phone with Paulie every time he wanted someone. We asked Paul, Sullivan said, I have a very open relationship with Paulie. So why were ECW stars looking to leave to go to WCW? Hmm, interesting question. Well, it's simple. It's all about money, Sullivan said. If you're paid nightly and you work for ECW eight times a month and someone offers you a yearly contract for three years guaranteed, what are you going to do? I don't understand people who go back in time and look at it. It's your livelihood. And if you got to go where the money is, you go. The Beatles didn't end up playing taverns after they made it big on the Ed Sullivan show, did they? 
But some ECW veterans said what Gordon pulled was just on another level altogether. By the end of 96, a fairly pronounced Philadelphia clique had emerged backstage inside of ECW. It was Sabu, the Sandman, Bill Alfonso, and the aforementioned Todd Gordon. Beset by physical problems, some in the locker room said Sabu was becoming very different backstage. According to people close to both men, the real reason Heyman had turned Sabu heel after barely legal was so that if he had to let go of him, it wouldn't look to the fans as if Heyman was getting rid of a fan favorite. Now, Gordon seemed to be having his problems as well. One person claiming to be Gordon's friend at the time goes on record to say Gordon himself was the biggest problem of all. The person said that one night Gordon even showed up with half of his mustache shaved off, and Gordon did not even appear to notice what he had done. Although he had already sold Heyman his ECW interest in May of 95, just before the paycheck started coming in from HHG Incorporated, Gordon was still a performer and on the payroll. Gordon was also one of the loudest complainers about the pay-per-view payoffs, and many people were not happy with that. Many were not happy with the delays in payments, sometimes even months before they ever got a check. But sometimes it involved the cable companies as well. Some even appeared to believe that they would be getting their checks and that they would be comparable to the ones that their friends in the WWF were getting. Of course, barely legal to only draw on a fraction of the viewers a typical WWF pay-per-view would get. When it comes to the monetary aspect, Paul did his very best. But when dealing with the cable companies and handling a payroll, sometimes Paul wasn't always on the up and up with everyone. Heyman and Gordon were still at odds with one another of how to proceed with ECW. Gordon's resistance to every move to expand ECW beyond its regional base in the Northeast. Gordon's friends in the company said he wanted to only ensure that the company he founded would survive. And with a philosophy close to Heyman, believed that Gordon was driven by ego, preferring to be a big fish in a small pond. Throughout 97, Heyman was also reportedly shooting down a lot of Gordon's ideas. Gordon repeated his request to expand his ECW commissioner role into a more prominent on-air character. Gordon wanted to work the manager of two females, Gordon came up with the idea that the trio would be known as Mr. G and the G-Spots. The G-Spots would be the two women named Peaches and Cream. Heyman shot down that idea more than once. He wanted Gordon to remain as the commissioner. And from all appearances, Gordon could have held that role indefinitely if it were not for what happened next. Now, the big companies had ways to keep their talent in one place. More than one person close to the wrestler said Vince McMahon had friends in the Tampa area in the real estate market. When wrestlers signed with the WWF, McMahon would put them in touch with those realtors who would often sell homes to wrestlers in the area. With the wrestlers now locked into making house payments, they couldn't afford to leave or defy the boss in risk of getting fired. Bills have an interesting way of making people more compliant even for the most ornery of wrestlers. Heyman had no such contracts, and ECW was anything but the home of the high-dollar long-term contract. In 97, Gordon tried to take advantage of the fact by attempting a coup that would have devastated ECW. In 97, Gordon was trying to sell WCW's Terry Taylor on the idea of Gordon coming to work for WCW, doing an invasion angle, 
similar to what was being done with the New World Order. In one of the most telling moments of the Forever Hardcore documentary DVD that came out in 2004, Taylor said that Gordon told him Heyman could not know what was going on under any circumstances. Heyman's discovery of Gordon's plan was the end of not only the plan, but of Todd Gordon in ECW. The group Gordon was looking to take was The Sandman, Perry Saturn, and Bill Alfonso. Gordon's crucial mistake was including two men who proved more loyal to Heyman than Gordon had anticipated. Not long after Sabu and Rob Van Dam were approached about Gordon's plan, both of them, independent of one another, called Heyman to tell him what was going on. Sabu evidently smelled a rat, while Van Dam simply seemed to be happy with his spot as the top villain who was on his way to becoming one of ECW's top babyfaces in an environment where he would not have to tone down his act or even his style. He was also likely remembered that Heyman stood up for him in the face of Vince McMahon, the most powerful wrestling promoter in the country. Displays of loyalty to that degree were rare in wrestling, and Van Dam decided to reciprocate. Heyman received a couple of other calls from wrestlers who seemed eager to flip on Gordon, which gave him all the proof he needed. A few days later, Sabu got a telephone call. It was Paul Heyman, who informed him that he was on speaker and that Sabu did not want to know who was in the room with Heyman. But according to all accounts, the audience consisted of Taz, Bubba Ray Dudley, among others. Heyman asked, who approached you, Sabu, about going to WCW? Sabu replied, Todd Gordon. And who was Gordon talking to in WCW, asked Heyman. Sabu answered, Terry Taylor. Heyman then called Rob Van Dam with the audience of wrestlers still in the room, and Van Dam gave the exact same answers. Some still did not want to believe Gordon was planning to sell ECW down the river. Heyman reportedly knew people who worked in the computer security industry, and with their help, he hacked into Gordon's voice pager. Heyman and the other wrestlers sat and listened to messages together. The first message was from Gordon's wife, but the second was from Terry Taylor, wanting to talk about an update on the list of talent for the new invasion angle. The stunning series of phone calls continued with a call to Taylor, who seemed surprised to hear from Paul Heyman himself. Heyman told Taylor that some of the talent he was looking to bring into WCW were still under contract. Thus, Taylor would be risking expensive litigation. Heyman also reportedly told Taylor that he might not be in the position to threaten him now. He was a big fish in a small pond, while Taylor was a small fish in a shark-infested pond. But someday, Heyman said, Taylor could find himself having to deal with Heyman, and whether that would be pleasant depended on what Taylor decided to do next. Taylor decided to cancel the ECW invasion, and the ECW camp had some decisions to make on their own. The first decision, what would to do with Todd Gordon? Well, that was easy. Paul decided it was time for Gordon to be gone. Also gone was Bill Alfonso. While the Sandman would be forced to sign a contract if he wished to stay with ECW. Perry Saturn, he left for WCW anyway. On September 20th of 97, shortly before the start of that night's ECW arena show, Heyman told Bill Alfonso that Gordon and he were gone following their match that night. The match was Rob Van Dam and Bill Alfonso versus Dreamer and Beulah. The two full-time wrestlers took a bump that put them out of the match early, leaving Beulah to face off against Bill Alfonso. Their match was supposed to be Alfonso getting thrashed as a blow-off to his character. Then a funny thing happened. 
Alfonso put in the performance of a lifetime. Beulah pounded him from pillar to post, as the cliche goes, and Fonzie bladed himself early. Within minutes, he was a blood-soaked mess and taking bumps like he had never taken before. When the match was over, Alfonso had been savaged, bloodied, and battered. But he also saved a job. How could Heyman justify firing a man who just bled half to death to save his job? As for Gordon, he and Heyman talked about their respective positions and decided they would leave some dignity to Todd Gordon and let him leave with his head held high and would not talk about any of this publicly. In fact, Heyman even refused to speak negatively about Gordon years later. In a 1998 American online chat with ECW fans, Heyman would write, What am I supposed to do here? Knock a man who gave me a job that I have today? Criticize a man that has been my friend for over five years? Say something bad about a man when he's needed a booker? And he didn't turn to Terry Funk. He didn't turn to Kevin Sullivan. But he turned to an unproven commodity, this wild card that everyone told him was not ready to be a booker yet. That was me. I'm sorry if it disappoints people. I'm sorry if it goes against my F you and F the world attitude. But for me to say anything, anything that is not beyond flattering about Todd Gordon would have to be prefaced by the five-hour discussion on how great a man of Todd Gordon was and is. Privately, Gordon and Heyman maintained a relationship after Gordon's departure from ECW. The funny thing about this is, I know he and Paul stayed in touch. Long after that, says Bob Artiz, former ring announcer, it obviously wasn't too bitter or too touchy of a situation because they both go back and forth till today. Todd still was privy to what was going on inside the inner workings of ECW even after he left. But Gordon was not as amicable. In 2005, he was telling friends that he had been screwed out of the company that he had founded and that Heyman did not have controlling interest, although the change in the person who was signing the checks was made pretty obvious. Most of the wrestlers and everyone else associated with ECW never got the straight scoop on exactly how or why Todd Gordon left ECW. Here's a quote. I had heard several different stories I don't even care to speculate it about, Axel Rotten said. I really don't care as long as Todd was okay. Leaving seemed to be his idea. Now, in a way, Gordon's departure also seemed to be the culmination of friction between ECW's two major contingents, the New York faction and the Philadelphia crew. Within ECW, there had been long been a sense of a rivalry between Paul Heyman and his fellow New Yorkers and Gordon's Philadelphia people. The cliques generated some legitimate animosity between the wrestlers and even other members of the promotion, although they generally were not as divisive as the cliques that were found in WWF or WCW at that time. Especially when Paul took over, Todd got out. I always felt I wasn't welcome in the locker room when Paul took over, said ring announcer Bob Ortiz. Now that never was true with the wrestlers. I had the best relationship with the wrestlers, no matter where they were from. But I got that feeling with Paul there was this sense that I was only there because of Todd. It never felt that same way, even when I did the one-night stand show in 2005, which Paul was basically running. It was still a little uncomfortable there, but again, not with the wrestlers. I had a ball working with all the workers. Axel Rotten said the climate in ECW changed when Todd Gordon left, and not necessarily for the better. In a quote, he says, Todd was one of those guys we could go to when we needed to get a straight answer about something. Paul never gave us a straight answer about anything, whether he did it or didn't mean to do it. 
We just never got an answer. I really don't think he knew how to give a straight answer. He'd say stuff like, well, let me explain it to you this way. And then he would give us some type of an analogy. We would come to him with a problem, and then he'd spin it. But now I look back. Paul wasn't 100% the tyrant that everybody made him out to be, and it never became such a huge issue because after Todd was gone, business continued. In fact, we started running shows all over the country. We were happy. We were working and going everywhere. Gordon had not been happy with ECW's expansion and its effects. According to several people close to both him and Heyman, Gordon disagreed with Heyman's belief that the only way for ECW to survive, to grow, and become more was to become a national powerhouse. They could afford to pay salaries that could afford to keep the company moving, to keep its top stars from being cherry-picked by WWF and WCW. Gordon was also not happy with the way Heyman handled ECW's business. As Heyman shouldered more responsibility, there were cracks in the foundation. Wrestlers repeatedly found themselves without travel arrangements until the very last minute. Tracy Smothers said many wrestlers got no more of an explanation of Gordon's departure than what all the fans saw on TV. All I know is they had a falling out. I didn't ask what was about, Smothers said. I guess it just worked it out between them. Everybody hated it because everybody loved Todd. I liked Paul, too. I'd known Paul since 1987. He was always a hustler, always on that phone, always thinking about something. Ring announcer Bob Ortiz said, To this day, as close as I am to Todd, I still don't know why he left. Just a sudden thing. No one ever saw it coming. It was so weird. One week, Todd was there. The next week, he was gone. But everything seemed to be kept quiet. But Gordon's absence did not keep ECW from rolling along. Heyman was getting new acts over, including WWF exile Al Snow, who was recently released as Leif Cassidy of the New Rockers. It was ECW's job to equip him with a gimmick that he could take back to the WWF. And ECW got a piece of talent for just a few months at no cost. But one thing that did carry a cost was the punishing physical style of ECW. More than one locker room observer noted that painkiller use was very prevalent in some cases, it actually bordered line on abuse. In fairness to some of the wrestlers, they seemed to know enough about what they were doing so they weren't suffering too much from the side effects of the medication. Rob Van Dam, who was even featured in an issue of Pro Marijuana magazine called High Times, was known as the foremost authority on marijuana. He knew how to grow it. He knew how to cultivate it. He knew how to prepare it. More than once, announcer Joey Styles made Sideways references to Van Damme's extracurricular activities, and Van Damme himself even adopted the catchphrase RVD420, says I just smoked your ass, was an offshoot of WWF's Austin 316. Years later on an episode of WWF's flagship show Monday Night Raw, Heyman himself was commenting when Rob Van Damme launched himself off the top rope, delivering his spectacular frog splash on a helpless foe. As the man, known to his fans as RVD, took flight, Heyman exclaimed, Nobody gets any higher than Rob Van Dam. Louis Spicoli had a solid, hard-working, if unspectacular, wrestling career. He caught the eye of the WWF in November of 94 when he participated in One World's Collide Lucha Libre pay-per-view. It didn't take long to wash out of the WWF, and then he showed up in ECW in 1996, seemingly determined to prove himself. Others says Spicoli's problems came back to haunt him more than once in embarrassing fashion. 
Once Heyman and a couple of other ECW people got to a Massachusetts hotel and asked if any other wrestlers had arrived yet. The clerk replied that Spicoli had, but that he had passed out in the lobby and to be, had to be helped to his room. Spicoli ended up in WCW by 1998, and the plan was to turn him into a spastic comedy character along the lines of Chris Farley. In February of 98, Spicoli died of an enlarged heart five days after his 27th birthday. By that point, friends said he had built up enough of a tolerance that he was taking two dozen or more somas a day. He was not the only one to be doing that either. ECW's physically punishing style left locker rooms often looking like a triage in a combat zone, and many of the stars were relieving their pains with pharmaceuticals. One person who spent time behind the scenes in ECW said many of the wrestlers were taking somas like candy, doping themselves up to the point that a few of them occasionally had to be spoon-fed food. Bob Ortiz said while many in the company ended up overusing drugs at one point or another, they should not be remembered as criminals. In a quote, he says, that's probably the one thing that bothers me that I hear in general. The drug use in wrestling, Ortiz says, from watching what went on in ECW, when you talk about drugs there, you're not talking about your hard street drugs. It was medical stuff, and they took it because the guys were so beaten up after every show. These are not cocaine users. They were not shooting up. They used pills. And one guy would give another wrestler some pills if he was hurting. I've even seen somebody taking a pill out knowing that he needed it, but he gave it to another guy who was laying on the floor in agony. Those guys worked their asses off. And it always bothered me when someone would say, they're not hurt. That stuff's fake. I would tell people, it's predetermined. But no one could look at the ECW locker room after an event and tell me that that was fake. The amazing thing was they always talking about what they wanted to do and where they wanted to go after that night was over. Drug problems also cost ECW one of its most popular tag teams. The Pitbulls had an ECW run that was very exciting. From their ring entrance, their music as White Zombies, Thunderkiss 65, the same song that served as the opening theme for ECW's television show. The Pitbulls were indicted on drug charges on June 25th of 97. Then they reached an agreement. They pleaded guilty and agreed to cooperate in turning in their supplier. The two men avoided federal prison, but as soon as the convictions became official, Heyman fired both of them from ECW. The drug bust also kept the Pitbulls from getting a shot with WCW, where they had been trying to get work as the case wound down. In an America Online chat with fans conducted in April of 1998, Heyman would write, I liked the Pitbulls. They were friends of mine, and I would give them nothing but the highest letter of recommendation to any prospective employer. Still, outside of a couple of isolated shots in which they would put over new stars, their ECW days were over. More than one person close to the company said that the drug problems were not limited to just two or three performers and were nothing new. One person described the ECW dressing room as loaded with cocaine. I've never seen a dressing room that looked that loaded before. Tracy Smothers would say he did not know who took what drugs and always made it a point to never find out because he believed in respecting his peers by minding his own business. But you see what it's doing to these guys in their matches. If a guy is going to jump off of a balcony, hell, I'd be hitting something after that. I don't know who took what and I don't want to know. But we all know that they were doing something. Look at New Jack. Not that I'm saying New Jack takes anything, but when he does one of those big high dives, New Jack's scared, even as tough as he is. You can see it in his eyes. 
And who wouldn't be? You're just hoping you land okay. And what about the guy on the table? The guy that you're landing on? I'm sure he's scared too. It would scare the hell out of me. With all the turmoil and turnover, one ECW act continued to plug along. They were known as the FBI, the full-blooded Italians. They started in the company in early 1996, wrestler J.T. Smith, who had been with ECW almost since its beginning, joining forces with the legitimately Italian American James Little Guido. Smith's inclusion came from a very real moment during a match when his foot caught the rope and he tried to dive out of the ring. He cracked his head on the concrete floor. The ECW fan showed their compassion by chanting, You fucked up. The injury turned into a gimmick because the story was that Smith became so deranged that he legitimately thought he was Italian. The faction often played for laughs, but there was nothing funny about little Guido's athletic background. Behind his comedic persona, Guido was a man with an impressive amateur wrestling credentials in his native New York area, where he also played nose guard for his high school football team. He had been trained by Billy Robinson, the British wrestler who was known to being one of the toughest wrestling shooters. Guido had also worked for Japan's UWF, which specialized in a stiffer, more brutal in-ring style that was ascribed to many as a more sophisticated type of wrestling for those kind of fans. He was a tough kid, and unlike us, he was Italian all the way, said Tracy Smothers, his frequent tag team partner. I was impressed with him from the first time I saw him. He could work. He could shoot as well as anyone. But Smothers said Guido was very good at many things. When we were teaming, Guido would start the match and would do some unbelievable wrestling, Smothers said. He's a great example of what wrestling should be. People don't know that. When you see an ECW pay-per-view, there are a lot of great matches and great workers. I mean, it was not just about tables and barbed wire. It wasn't all about that. Paul wouldn't have every match be about that. You have to get the people ready for it. It's like a restaurant. People like different kinds of food. So the bigger a menu you have, the more you're going to appeal to people. By the time the main event was coming around, they'd now be ready. Guido had actually worked in ECW during the company's earliest days, both as a masked ninja and a preliminary wrestler named Damian Stone. When J.T. Smith left the company, Heyman brought in Tommy Rich and Tracy Smothers to play the obvious not-Italian members of the full-blooded Italians. Both men were already superstars in the southern part of the United States, Rich having a very brief stint as the NWA world champion back when, yeah, it meant something. Chris Candido and Shane Douglas recommended Smothers to Heyman, and for a short period, Smothers was working for ECW and the WWF Wrestling. Afternoon shows for McMahon as Freddie Joe Floyd before transferring back into the full-blooded Italian at night for an ECW show. I had to go to Kuwait for WWF and work a tour, and then I had to be back in New Haven the same day. Smothers and Rich played their roles to the hilt and were still as wild away from the ring as they were funny inside of it. Many an ECW spectator and wrestler had stories of the two men blasting Hank Williams Jr. in their pickup truck with a Confederate flag fixed to it. They rode to their matches in Philadelphia, Boston, and other Northeast strongholds. Once they got to the arena for one night, they would go right into their gimmicks, screaming and cursing as passerbys, seemingly at random. Many of the wrestlers developed reputations for rowdiness in and out of the ring, 
in ECW. They were thrown out of more than one hotel. Many of the guys traveled economically, sometimes packing 15 into a single hotel room. Two of ECW's more prominent performers figured out another way to save money while on the road. They would stage a robbery in their hotel room and get comped for the room. They tossed the beds and then told people they kept their wallets under the mattresses and they were gone. On some nights, a ring rat, which is a female who would frequent the matches in hopes of getting a date or going home with one of the wrestlers, kind of the equivalent to a groupie in a rock band, would accompany numerous performers back to the hotel where they would engage in activities. But the hardcore heroes had their softer sides too. When Princess Diana died in 97, were all these cast-offs, the crazies, the thugs, sitting in a packed hotel room, watching TV, all respectful and quiet as they were watching the funeral. Security man Stu Kaplan said his introduction to Tommy Rich was memorable. In his quote, he said, I'd had a security shirt made and I had a couple of police patches, so I put them on here to make it look legitimate, he said. I walked into the dressing room with my shirt that I had picked up from the dry cleaners. Well, this was Tommy's first time in Boston. When I walked in, he was talking with Tracy and he just froze. He said, 5-0, man. A couple of the guys in the locker room even started to laugh. And I said, no, I work for you guys. Rich joined in laughing and told Kaplan, that shirt's getting ripped off tonight, buddy. Kaplan said Rich was joking around, but Kaplan still made it a point not to be visible in the arena when Rich and Smothers had their match that night. Nice shirts were also starting to catch on with ECW fans. Shirts bearing images of wrestlers and logos and slogans such politically incorrect as possible and ECW was damn proud of it, became favorites among the regular crowd, and it helped the sales too. They didn't go for those cartoonish appeals that WWF and WCW were using. ECW shirts looked a lot like apparel that would be sold at rock concerts, and they were all done in-house. Tommy Dreamer took care of just about everything, shirts and tapes, but Paul would walk around with the t-shirt money in his pants, and I mean a big wad of cash. There was no real formal office atmosphere either. Dreamer also contributed to booking ideas, including a comedy bit that was remembered even years later at the ECW arena. It was a dance-off between the Blue Meanie and Tracy Smothers. The two men were in a match when Smothers challenged Meanie. Smothers went first, scooting to the strains of the version of Staying Alive. That was his entrance music. The Meanie followed and the bloodthirsty crowd of ECW arena exploded into laughter at the sight of the two grapplers trying to get down. Tommy Dreamer handled merchandise at the tables. Taz was designated to design the shirts. Stevie Richard handled phone orders. Local fans set up the ring and took tickets. The WWF and WCW might have been more financial players, but ECW felt like it was a more of a family affair to those who wanted to be a part of it. The family concept was just one thing that made wrestling in this promotion even a little bit more personal. Most buildings in which ECW ran shows had single dressing rooms in which the performers changed their clothes. And in most towns, the layouts was basically the same. A cluster of wrestlers all in one room with Paul Heyman sitting at a table in the middle of the room. At the ECW arena, the pay-per-view shows most of the wrestlers huddled around monitors watching the matches. When two wrestlers came back into the dressing room, they were often greeted with praise for their match, and they were also suggested with ideas from veterans who told them how they could build upon for their next match. This approach was starkly different than the backstage environment in WCW, wherein some of the big stars had their own dressing rooms and never even communicated 
with the mid-card and preliminary guys, all of whom shared one or two locker rooms. The biggest contributor to what made ECW what it was, was Shane Douglas would later say, There were no clicks. We all had a good time. Everybody would be part of the dressing room. Guys, that's going to wrap up chapter 15 of the extremely unauthorized story of ECW. I hope you've enjoyed this chapter. There's a lot of things we talked about here. I'm sure there's going to be more questions that you're going to have as well, such as Luis Spicoli. We are probably going to do a deep dive on him on an episode of Front Row Material. We're also going to kind of jump back into the drug use as well. What was that like? Was it just prescription medication? Or was it how some people said more cocaine than you could ever imagine. What's going on with all that? What's really the truth? Why do so many people still to this day not know the reason why Todd Gordon left ECW? Was there specific reasons behind that? Was it a situation where Paul Heyman just wanted to show some dignity to Todd Gordon and not publicly shame or humiliate him once he was gone from the promotion? Very interesting things right here. But as we go along in this book, I think you're starting to see things change. And I don't necessarily mean with the money situation because it appears that that's always been kind of a, a, a stubborn Achilles heel with ECW. But I think Paul legitimately wanted to find ways to make ECW survive and succeed. I don't think Todd wanted to expand. I think Todd was very content with it being just a small regional promotion. But when you have somebody like Paul Heyman who very much is an innovator, very much is someone who loves competition and thrives off of that. Can you really blame him? Can you blame him for wanting to expand ECW into other portions of the country to try to get on network television, to try to get on pay-per-view? I don't understand, at least from my perspective, why Todd would be against that. But you know what? That's just my opinion. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Do you think ECW should have stayed small and regional and maybe still be around to this day in a very small way, kind of like the early inception of TNA is? Or do you think, you know, you know what? If you have an opportunity, you got to go for it. And Paul did, and he went for broke, and it didn't work. But you know what? Better to try than not have tried at all. Guys, that's going to do it. When we get together next time, we're going to be talking about Chapter 16 and it is entitled The Whole Effin' Show. And I know you guys all know what that means, but something I would like for you to do for me. If you're enjoying what we are doing on this show, on Front Row Material and for the False Finish on Friday, please go on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave some comments. We will make sure that we read your comments on the show as well. And if you do want to pick up some merchandise, cruise on over to Pro Wrestling Tees. You can get a Mikey Whipwreck or Jerry Lynn shirt, or you can get the original logo, FRM Pod shirt as well. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can follow me at Mike Freeland. You can follow Jerry Lynn at It's Jerry Lynn, or you can follow Mikey Whipwreck at Mikey Whipwreck underscore. All right, that's going to do it. Hope you're doing well. I hope your week is going well. And I'll catch you next time on Overbooked. The world.